that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. What is it that sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other philosophy, every other belief system? What sets Christianity apart? What makes Christianity unique? That's why you're here today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what makes Christianity unique. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important historical event in all of human history. There is no more important event than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything that we as, as Christians believe, our very faith and our hope are founded on that resurrection. The Apostle Paul tells us if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not occur, then Christianity is not unique. It's no different. It's no different from any other system of belief. It's no different from any other philosophy. It's just so much wishful thinking. The Apostle Paul tells us in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians between verses 14 and 19, he tells us if, it, if the resurrection did not occur, if it's not true, then our proclamation of good news is empty and useless. It makes no difference what we say. If the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is in vain. If the resurrection did not happen, then we are not forgiven. We are still in our sins and we are hopeless. If the resurrection didn't happen, every person, every Christian who died as a Christian is still dead in their sins. And he says, most poignantly of all, if the resurrection didn't happen, we of all people are most to be pitied because if we say we believe, we're simply deluded about the ultimate end of mankind. We're only wasting our time, wasting our energy, and wasting our money. I remarked to the congregation at 6 a.m. at our sunrise service, we had roughly over 1,000 people sitting in the parking lot. I said, if the resurrection didn't really happen, we should all still be in bed. Some of whom said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to you quickly about 10 implications of the truth of Jesus' resurrection and why the resurrection matters. And think closely with me. Follow along with me. If you're not a believer yet, if you don't know Jesus Christ, think along with me. Set aside whatever intellectual, religious, philosophical bias you may have. Just set it aside. You're here anyway. You might as well listen, pay attention, and see if God doesn't speak to your heart. First of all, the resurrection validates the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. No one like him. You read the gospel accounts, you see over and over and again, people said, wow, we've never seen these things. We've never heard these things. Things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did. Paul tells us again, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, that he was buried, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I submit to you, who else has been raised from the dead according to the scriptures? Nobody. Nobody. Psalm 16, the psalmist David pens this. He says, God, 
You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So David is, is not only speaking of his own life and his trust in God, but he's also prophesying about the ultimate Messiah, the Holy One of God, will not see decay. He'll be saved. He'll be resurrected from the grave. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read marvelous words. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. So though Jesus suffered on the cross and died, he will see life. In verse 11 of that same passage, he says, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge of my righteousness my righteous servant will indeed justify many. What a beautiful picture of the Messiah. There's nobody like Jesus. In the prophet Jonah, some of you remember Jonah, and uh, some think it's a fairy tale. Here's, here's a prophet who tried to escape God, and in his effort to escape God, God sent a giant fish to swallow him. Jesus quotes the prophet Jonah referring to himself, and he says, as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Speaking again of his death, burial, and resurrection. His rising from the dead substantiates his claims, not only to be the Son of Man, but also the Son of God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that by his resurrection from the dead, the testimony is true that he is God in the flesh, the Son of God. He is unlike any other teacher. He's like any other spiritual leader or guru. There's nobody like Jesus. Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am. He excludes every other religious person, every other leader, every other teacher, spiritual teacher. I'm the way for those who are lost. I'm the truth for those who are seeking the truth. And I'm the life for those who are dying. You want to know God? You want to know the Father? Come to me. Come to me. Everything he said Everything he did is trustworthy. You can trust Jesus. Well, pastor, how do I know that I can trust Jesus? Because Jesus, in the final analysis, did the hardest thing, the most impossible thing. What was that, do you think? What's the hardest thing for a person to do? Come back from the dead. Would you agree with me that's the hardest thing for a person to do? Come back from the dead? Early on in my pastoral life, I... I did take some chances, and I did pray over some people who died and tried to raise them from the dead, and was unsuccessful. And then pondering that, wondering about it later on, I thought, you know, if I was a Christian and I died, I would not want somebody bringing me back. <laughs> I told my wife, if I die before you, don't call the elders to pray over me and try to bring me back. Let me go. I'm in glory. I don't want to come back and do this again. <laughs> so if he did the hardest thing, and he predicted he would do it, he predicted the time frame in which he would do it, three days, if he actually did it, 
Don't you think that everything else he said you could depend on is trustworthy? I can trust him. I can trust him. Secondly, the resurrection confirms what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament is all is the fulfillment of the Old. It receives all the Old, and we find all the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And when you begin to study the Scriptures, you begin to do that from that vantage point, from that perspective, you begin to see again and again and again the richness of God's plan and purpose. That Bible, written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. And the continuity is absolutely mind-boggling. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And because he rose, we have confidence that his death satisfied God's justice and that God has vindicated him. And we, by extension, are also vindicated by faith. The Apostle Paul tells us he was put to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. That's a theological word. You can translate it this way. God looks at you now as a Christian just as if you'd never sinned. Can you imagine that? Just as if you'd never sinned. All of our sins, the Bible tells us, are cast as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the sea of his forgetfulness. God does not remember our sins. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. When you go to confess your sin and you say, God, I did it again. You know what God's response is? Again? He's forgotten it. It doesn't count. He doesn't keep a list. Most of us are list keepers, aren't we? I remember when you did that. Oh, you did it again. I got you. I got you. God doesn't do that. We're justified in his sight, just as if we'd never sinned. You see, because of Jesus' death on that cross and because of justification, now, now you can have peace with God. Well, don't I have peace with God now? If you're not a believer, you don't have peace with God. The Bible tells us that we are by nature objects of his wrath. But he is rich in mercy and in love and doesn't want anyone to perish, but rather to save us. But you can have peace with God. Because you have peace with God, you can know the peace of God, which will guard your mind and heart. There are more and more and more freaked out people in our world, you know that? More and more people who are clueless, clueless about life, clueless about their purpose. Our school systems are raising kids, training kids, no values, no manners. Values free education. We have kids raising kids. More and more people without intact homes. It's heartbreaking. Is it any wonder that people people are just kind of floating out there? And they live with fear and anxiety. You see, there can be no real lasting peace unless and until you first have peace with God. You heard nearly all of these candidates for baptism. 
come through in their testimony, someplace in their testimony, they said they're different. They're more at peace. It's not a relative thing. It's genuine peace. You come to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You're not at war with God anymore. You can, guess what? <sighs> Exhale. You can rest. Because now he comes and lives in you. He begins to work in you. And so that you can actually begin to experience the reality of his peace in your life. The miracle of new life. And thirdly, the resurrection initiated the gospel. Initiated the good news of Jesus Christ. We have good news for people. I love to tell people, hey, I have good news for you. Most of the world is full of bad news, isn't it? How refreshing it is when someone says, I have good news for you. Good news. You see, without the resurrection, there is no good news. There's only bad news. Bad news. Think about it. And most people don't want to think about it. Most people don't want to think about death and hell and punishment and accountability. It's not our favorite thing as modern people to be accountable. But God calls us to be. Our Easter faith is based on the Easter event. And that Easter event goes back to eyewitnesses. Paul records in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians that when Jesus rose, he appeared to people. He appeared first to Peter. I love that. If you have an understanding of Jesus' relationship with Peter. He appeared first to Peter and then to the twelve. He goes on and he says, then he appeared to 500 people at one time in one place. And Paul says, most of those people are still alive. You could go and talk to them and they'll tell you, we saw him, we touched him, he spoke to us, he's alive. And then he appeared to his brother James. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and lastly, he appeared to me as one untimely born, Paul himself, who calls himself the chief of all sinners. That leads us to our fourth point. The resurrection means that Jesus can be known today. Church, if it is true that he rose and is alive, he's not in the tomb anymore, then he can be known. People can meet him and know him. I can know Jesus? For most people today, God is distant but the Bible speaks about having this intimate personal relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. You can know him. In fact, again, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about knowing him better. My wife and I have been married nearly 40 years, and we still want to know each other better. We know there's, there are things that we can know about each other better. We can appreciate each other better. And all of us can understand that. We don't want our relationships to be static, be dead, dormant, relationships in name only. We want our relationships to be dynamic. And as we understand that in this life, in our temporal relationships, the same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. It's not just knowing about Jesus, it's knowing him. That you can talk to him with confidence that he hears you and he listens. And that he'll speak back to you. 
and he'll direct you. You can know him. In fact, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, nothing can be compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing can be compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Once you begin to understand, you want to know him better and better and better. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a great, great crop to come. The certainty of his resurrection guarantees the certainty of our resurrection. If you didn't know it, if you're a Christian and you die, you get a resurrection body. You'll be resurrected from the dead to glory. The Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reminds us of that. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. John writes in his first epistle, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Resurrection bodies. Imagine. A scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy said one time, he says, when I looked at religion, I had two questions. And this is really, these are really the, the bottom line questions when people begin to look at religion. This is the issue, really. When I looked at religion, I had two questions. First, has anybody ever conquered death? And secondly, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? He goes on, he says, I checked the tomb of Buddha. It was still occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius. It too was still occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad. It was occupied. Then I came to the tomb of Jesus. It was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to conquer death? And I opened the Bible, and I discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. <sighs> you shall live also. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has defeated our last enemy. There are many, many enemies of life, but the last enemy, the most vicious enemy, the greatest enemy is what? It's death. That's our greatest enemy. Every single person fears death. Even coming up to the very edge. You can live your life and say, oh, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of death. But when you get right to it, I trust you. You're afraid. There's an unknown what's going to happen. Paul tells us, that he's defeated our last enemy through his resurrection. Listen to these words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the unpleasantness of dying is still with us, but the fear of what lies beyond death's door is gone. One of the greatest tests of any philosophy is what it makes of death. This is one of the great questions of life. What about death? What happens at death? Every philosopher, every philosophy, every religion, everybody has tried to answer that question. And I submit to you, there's no satisfactory answers except from Jesus Christ. What happens at death? Some people believe you just go out of existence. That's it. You go around once. That's it. If that's true, then what, are we, what, are we, what should we be doing right now? Pottying. Man, we should be pottying right now, shouldn't we? Not sitting here listening to me yell at you. Some people believe that you become one with the all-nothingness. That's the truth. I, I, I'm not mocking. I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely, it's tragic to me. Some people believe that you do this all over again. Well, that's real appealing. <laughs> I, I don't want to come back and do this again. Well, you see, it's your karma. You get, you, you, you get all this karma and you get to this place where you move on to the next highest level. Ha! That means in this life you've got to be perfect. Imperfect beings, by definition, can't become perfect in this life by their own efforts. Because their own efforts are imperfect. Oh, I didn't think of that. So do I go into oneness with all nothingness? Do I just go out of existence? Do I come back and do this all over again? Or do I trust in Jesus and experience life and eternal? Passing through that portal of death into all eternity. The writer to Hebrews says this, Jesus shared our humanity that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What happens at death? Just this past week, we were blessed to be able to minister to a man on his deathbed. He called one of our elders, the family called one of our elders, and he came from a Jewish background, and for the majority of his life into his 70s was resistant to the gospel. Although he's married to a Christian woman, she loved him, served him, honored him all the days of their married life. And then they called the elders who's on his deathbed. He wanted two things. He wanted to be right with God and he wanted to be forgiven of his sins. And just a couple of short hours before he passed into eternity, couldn't even speak. But he was, he was asked if he, if he wanted to make a profession of faith, if he, if he understood that Jesus died for his sins, and would he be willing to give his life to Jesus? 
Do you believe? Do you understand? Are you born again? And a couple of short hours later, yours in eternity. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He'll chase you and chase you and chase you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives victory to human beings who trust him. Again, Paul reminds us that God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always through him. It's through Jesus and his finished work on that cross and his resurrection. We have victory. We have victory over the evil influences of men. And many of us were evil influencers before we came to Christ, before we repented. All of us have come out of the world. All of us were evil. And we express evil in some measure. You may not like to hear that. Somebody said, no, 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 I was a good person. I was a good person. No, you're a sinner, just like the rest of us. But you see, we have victory over the evil influences of men. We have victory over the evil spiritual forces. Jesus told his disciples, and by extension, he tells us, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Wow. We have victory. We have victory. It's through Jesus Christ we have victory over the severest afflictions that life can throw at us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There are people today, as you and I sit comfortably here, there are people today in other parts of the world whose lives are being threatened whose throats are being cut, who are being beheaded for the sake of the gospel because they believe in Jesus and they stand firm. And we pray for them that their faith would be strong. They have victory through Jesus Christ over the severest afflictions. What can separate us? Paul says nothing. Nothing, he says. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more than a conqueror? It's a super conquering. We have victory even over the severest afflictions of this life. We are not without power. We are not without hope. No matter what happens in our life, Jesus is there. Jesus is there, isn't he? The resurrection of Jesus is the pledge, and it's the model of our own resurrection body on the last day. We shall be like him. We shall be like him. If you go to the end of the Gospels after his resurrection, and the accounts give us, give us insight into what he was like, what his body was like. He could appear and disappear at will. You could touch him. You could feel him. It was a spiritual body, powerful in every way. We shall be like him. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. My, my, what hope. He says, so will be, Paul says, so will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
There'll be continuity of life. But the expression of that life will be totally different. Will we know each other? Oh, yes. But we'll be glorified. We'll be glorified. Brand new bodies. I don't know about you. No more arthritic knees. No more degenerative disc disease. No more headaches. No more pain. No more sorrow. Brand new bodies. Man, that's worth the price of, alone, of admission alone, isn't it? A brand new body. What else you got to hope on? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of his return. He's coming back. He's coming back. In the book of Acts, in the first chapter, as his disciples were with him and as he was ascending into heaven, an angel appeared, Luke writes, and it says, the angel says, you will see him come back just as he has gone into heaven. A physical ascension, and he'll come back physically. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes these marvelous words. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I don't know about you. I want to be there to see that. I want to be at Green Hills or Pacific Crest. In my 35 years of ministry, I've had the blessing and the sorrow of burying any number of people. And I'd love to see them rise. Can you imagine being in one of those cemeteries and all of a sudden these graves start popping open? You're going, whoa, did you see that? Did you see that? Look at that. The dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus comes. But not only that, he goes on to say, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Somebody say hallelujah. He's coming back. He's coming back. That he died and rose that he died and rose in the past is a pledge that he will come again at the end of time, as he said he would, to bring all history to a climax. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter of the Bible, three times, in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, Jesus says this, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I know someone's going, hurry up. That's why our response is what? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We welcome your coming. But Lord, there's still people that I love and care about who are not yet in the kingdom. So if you will, delay just a bit. But your time is right. And in the meantime, the resurrection of Jesus is the spur for our Christian lives, for our Christian service. As we proclaim good news to other people, we say, I have good news for you. I have good news for you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have life. 
It's a spur not only for our sharing good news, it's a spur for us as we serve other people. The Apostle Paul, at the end of the 15th chapter here in 1 Corinthians, says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sometimes you can be laboring for the Lord and it doesn't seem to be making any progress. You think, what, 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 am I making any difference? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do not grow weary in doing well. For in due season, you reap a harvest. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave us a command. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're, we're, we're to testify. We're to tell people good news, good news. We're to serve people. Jesus tells us in the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, shelter the stranger, clothe the naked, take care of the sick, visit prisoners. Every institution that's ever been birthed that ministers to these needs, hospitals, all sorts of social institutions, were all Christian in the beginning. Their response to Jesus' commands, Christian grace, Christian mercy, Christian kindness, the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at the history of all these institutions, you see at their genesis was a Christian testimony and a Christian goal to be obedient. Church, New Testament Christianity is a religion of the resurrection. John Locke, the 18th century British philosopher, said this. He says, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity. So great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls on it. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Because it is the cornerstone of our faith and the gospel, the resurrection has been the target of Satan's greatest attacks on the church. There have been people down through history have worked hard, worked hard to disprove the resurrection because they recognize and know it's the very cornerstone of Christianity. If you can disprove the resurrection, Christianity doesn't have a leg to stand on. And everyone who's been intellectually honest enough, and that's the challenge to be intellectually honest, you set aside your philosophical, religious, personal bias, and you go do the study, you examine the text, you find out, you study history. Did this really happen? And everyone that's done that in an attempt to disprove the resurrection has come back and said, guess what? It happened. And they too are convinced of Jesus Christ. You see, if the resurrection is eliminated, the life-giving power of the gospel is also eliminated. If the resurrection is eliminated, the deity of Christ is eliminated. He's not God. If the resurrection is eliminated, salvation from sin is eliminated and eternal life is eliminated. None of it, none of it is true if the resurrection is not true. If Jesus Christ did not live past the grave, you and I who hope in him 
surely will not live beyond the grave. And we are, to put it in Paul's words, we are to be pitied more than all men. We're wasting our time, wasting our energy. You see, without the resurrection, salvation could not have been provided. And without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. You simply believe. It can be summed up in this one sentence. Again, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be. Let's do that again. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You'll be saved. That's it. You say, that's it? That's it? Do I believe? Do I believe? Yes. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth because what? Out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. I don't say things that I don't really believe in my heart. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. It's not that you have to be good enough. It's not that you qualify. It's not that we deserve it. It's called grace. 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 God is gracious. And he's merciful. It is not possible, therefore, to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the pivot. It's the cornerstone upon which all Christianity turns. And so in closing, I want to read to you again the first four verses of our chapter. Now, brethren, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received... I didn't make it up. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. 